Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. All right, I'm excited for this. It is time to welcome our guest co-host today. All right, IC Vodcast community, you know how we do. Let's prepare to welcome Deanna Minus Vincent. I will share some facts about Deanna and then, as is our custom, ask Deanna to greet us personally. Deanna Minus Vincent has tackled the toughest issues plaguing our country today. Equity, poverty, housing, health, and education, just to name a few, that's so powerful. Deanna has created programs that move individuals along their pathway, but Deanna believes that the most sustainable change happens when we work across sectors to re-engineer fractured systems. I love that word fractured. In so doing, we can exponentially impact the lives of many and create that sustainable change that I know we all want. Deanna is noted for not just programmatic and policy prowess, but also for scaling organizations. She has transformed entities, dramatically increased revenue, service regions, as well as product mix. Drawing from a broad range of lived and learned experiences, Deanna Minus Vincent currently acts as the founder and managing director of The Outcomes Architect, an advisory group intent on working across sectors to integrate services and reimagine how health is addressed and services are delivered. That's powerful. Immediately prior to this role, Deanna served as executive vice president and the inaugural chief social justice and accountability officer for RWJ Barnabas Health. Deanna designed two award-winning strategies to improve health outcomes, promote health equity, eliminate health disparities, and reduce healthcare costs. Prior to that role, Deanna served as the Chief Engagement Officer at Benefits Data Trust, a national social change organization, where she facilitated cross-sector partnerships, diversified that organization's revenue streams, and oversaw that organization's strategic positioning, as well as the Assistant Commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Community Affairs, where she honed her community development skills. Deanna received a Master's of Public Administration from Rutgers, a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Morgan State, a historically Black university, and is currently pursuing a doctorate in Business Administration with a concentration in Leadership and Innovation. Deanna was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey, and lives in Lumberton, New Jersey now with her husband, Daryl, and her daughter, Darren. Please welcome Deanna. Hi, Deanna. I am so excited for this conversation. How are you today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to join the conversation. You are welcome. One of the things that we do here in our community is after I have read your bio, we ask you to welcome um, us in your own way, to greet us in a way you want to, maybe sharing something that maybe we didn't learn from your bio that I just read that we can't find online or on LinkedIn. So I welcome you to do that now. Definitely. So some of the more most important roles I have is I am a mother and I am a mother of a soon to be graduating, um, graduating student from college. She graduates tomorrow um, from St. Joe's University. And I am so proud. Um, and she has a job. So I'm even <laughs> proud. <laughs> so, she'll be joining Boston Consulting Group. I am also wow. the wife 
I am married to my very best friend. We are celebrating 27 years and I still have butterflies in my stomach every day. I love that. Um, I always say that it is easy to love someone and it's harder to like them every day. And I like mm-hmm. you. Um, so those are my two most important roles. Um, and I, I can't wait to join next week if you'll allow me because data-driven is kind of my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I started as an accounting major which at Drexel University, which is um, oh. I, I don't, don't know a lot about. Um, and then I said, I can't do debits and credits the rest of my life. And then I turned totally and went to sociology. So yeah. that's a little bit about me that people don't know. And I am a fierce um, Trentonian. I love New Jersey and I'm also a fierce 49ers fan. So wow. about me. I love that. Thank you for sharing something new about yourself. Um, and congratulations on your daughter's upcoming graduation. Um, I'm very excited for you. My fingers are crossed. Positive thoughts are going out that it does not rain in Trenton tomorrow so that you and all your family members can, can be there to celebrate your baby girl. So um, yeah, fingers crossed for you. I am so excited about this conversation, Deanna. I cannot even tell you how excited I am. When I read your bio, I was like, first of all, this person is busy. Okay. You are booked and busy. All right. So that is, that is one thing. Um, Also, I am just so excited to hear about more of your beginnings and your career. So let's get into it. Um, You know, tell us more about your career. How did you get started? So like I said, I started as an accounting major and I couldn't do that. And then I wanted to save the world. And, but I knew that direct service wasn't really for me. I I didn't know that I wanted to be an administrator. And a lot of people don't really want to be an administrator, but that's what I wanted to be. I tried direct service um, in college. I worked in group homes and I, I quickly realized that that wasn't for me either. And I got my start working for the city of Trenton Department of Health and thinking about maternal child health, thinking about substance use, um, thinking about mental health issues. And my first, what I consider a real, real job was with one of the maternal child health consortia. In New Jersey, every birthing hospital must belong to a consortia where a percentage of every birth is given to this maternal child health planning entity to think about better maternal child health outcomes. And it was there where I had the opportunity to sit on the then governor, Christy Todd Whitman's first blue ribbon panel on black infant mortality. And that was so cutting edge at the time. And it was there, I mean, because at the time people said, oh, it's just because black women use too many substances or black women don't go for their prenatal care. And it was in that report that systemic racism came up to the fore because we looked at black women from other countries and we looked at other things and it it said no you know black women from other countries don't have the same poor maternal outcomes until they come to america it's not till that second generation and that really clicked in me first it it, it clicked because i had never really put the two together that maybe black babies were dying because of systemic racism and just the amount of hate mail we got. I remember one letter that came and it said, why do you care about black babies when black bears are dying in New Jersey? And I thought to myself, bears or babies? Babies of any color. Wow. Why would you ever care about a bear? And I, I'm sorry, animal lovers. Okay, bears <laughs> are probably important too. 
but a baby, a baby. Yeah. And um, it showed me just how people thought. And I stayed in maternal child health. And I, at the time, my husband and I both, we, we did our, doc, our um, master's programs at the same time. And we just finished up and we thought it was time for us to start a family. We had been married six years and we got pregnant. I was working in maternal child health. I had the best care. I was working strenuously. I had done um, everything I could. And we lost our first baby as I was working on black infant mortality, as I was interviewing mothers who had lost their babies. And um, it was just really eye-opening, the whole experience. And, um, but I decided, even though I loved that work, I wasn't a clinician. I didn't want to be pigeonholed at that point in my career. I was more of a generalist. So at the time, the next governor tapped me on the shoulder to join his administration to oversee housing. And um, I saw someone ask me how many months. So I was um, four months along. Um, so it was still early in my pregnancy, but nonetheless, you know, it, it was still shocking. And how I was told was pretty callous. They said, oh, no wonder you lost your baby. It was just a bad, it just didn't take, bad egg. And it was just like, uh, well, yeah, it was the egg to you, but it was, it was my child. So, um, so we moved along and, but I always say that wasn't the one that the universe had for me. She was Darren and she is graduating tomorrow. That, that's the one the universe had. So I went to oversee housing and, and I didn't know a lot about housing other than that people should have it. It should be affordable. It should be safe. And it, so I oversaw the softer side of housing, whether it's a playgrounds, building safe neighborhoods. And I quickly moved up within the Department of Community Affairs to be deputy chief of staff and then ultimately assistant commissioner. And it was a really tough time. I had never worked in state government um, and people didn't like that I reorganized state government. I didn't know you weren't supposed to reorganize state government. I didn't know that it wasn't supposed to be efficient. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, so I thought that it should be organized geographically. I thought that people should get to know the mayor and the nonprofits and we should actually build neighborhoods as opposed to programmatically. So, uh -huh. you know, rehabbing one house over here and, yeah. um, and people picketed me. Men used the urinal, um, my picture on the urinal for target practice. Wow. Um, I was called a darkie the first four days on the job. Um, it was hard, but again, I, I had a loving family and, and it was what it was. It taught me to have really broad shoulders. And I think it's all about teaching experiences. Mm. So, um, so then I moved to the, to benefits data trust, learned about big data, learned how you could use data driven strategies, targeted outreach to really help people get the services and supports that they need. And that, with that mindset, I came to RWJ Barnabas Health and really um, looked to change how healthcare was delivered. Wow, Deanna, what a story. What a story. I, I can see in the chat your, your story, the things that you're sharing resonating powerfully with people in our community already. And thank you for sharing so authentically and so vulnerably. Your story about um, 
your experience with miscarriage is especially powerful, resonates with me. I don't know any woman of color who does not have a story like yours. I have a story like yours when interacting with healthcare professionals and being treated so callously. And I, I remember thinking at that time, you know, this is why we need more people of color in the healthcare sector. This is why we need more women of color who are health practitioners. This is why I personally will never have a doctor who is not a person of color. This is why. And so I'd love to hear from you. Why, Deanna, is it important for Black women to pursue careers in the healthcare sector? I think it's critical. And I've been trying to find, and I'll, I'll let me just preface this a little bit. I've been trying to find ways to decompress, to de-stress. And I haven't always taken that time. And so I decided, and this may sound a little bit like couch potato-ish, and that's okay. I, I decided to start watching Grey's Anatomy from season one. And I just got to the episode where Miranda Bailey had a heart attack. Oh, so, so powerful. Yes. And she went to a, and Miranda Bailey, for anybody who doesn't watch, she's the chief of surgery at the, the hospital that is the show is about. And she went to a competing hospital to have a heart attack and she told them all the symptoms and they didn't listen. And she had to repeat and they ran these tests and she said, well, run these other tests and they didn't listen. So she called over her colleagues from her hospital system. And, and then she had a major heart attack. She, they called her husband finally. And then at the end, she called her mother. Yeah. And I found myself just bawling. And my husband came home and he's looking because on May 7th of 2022, I had a heart attack. Oh my goodness. And it was the same day that my mother was diagnosed with COVID, which took her a month later. And the first thing I did when I came out from being stented was I called my mom. And I realized, and the healthcare system treated us both so inequitably. And my story was Miranda's story. And my story and Miranda's story is millions of women's story. And she, and I'm not a clinician. I, I, I pretend to be, but I'm not a clinician. You play one on TV. Right. But Miranda in, on TV is the doctor. Right. And she told them the tests to run and she told mm -hmm. them, and she's the highest ranking woman That's right. in the healthcare system. Yeah. At, at my healthcare system, I was the highest ranking woman of color. And three weeks prior, well, let's go back to February. So May 7th, I had the heart attack. I was a woman of impact for the American Heart Association because my mother had heart disease and my grandmother had heart disease. And they took video of me going to my cardiologist as a part of my story. And, and there's video of me saying, my blood pressure has gone up over the year, the past couple of years. Do you think it's because of my age? And they said, no, it's 120 over 70. That's perfect. I said, but it used to be 86 over 68. And they used to take it twice because they couldn't believe it's so low. 
that's not my baseline. And my arm's been getting numb and I can't feel my fingers sometimes. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. I said, but it's not perfect for me. I said, I went to the emergency room in November because I had pain and they sent me home. But it's perfect for you. And they cleared me for a routine surgery even after seeing something in my calcium test score. And I went through a six hour surgery. I mean, it was for a tummy tuck. I don't mind telling my friends here. And, and I wonder what could have happened during that tummy tuck. And that was on April 18th. And then May 7th, I had a heart attack. And I still just thought it was an allergic reaction to flowers my, scent, my daughter sent. And I spent all night not being able to sleep. It was not until my husband forced me to go to the ED and they were about to send me home. The only reason they did not was because there was a cardiologist on early morning rounds and he said, something's not right with you. And my troponin levels were going up. They're supposed to be 19. They were 27, then they were 40. And I text my cardiologist, they are overreacting. Just come see me next week. And then they continued to go up. And when they went in, I was 95% blocked in my left main artery. Wow. So when you ask me why there needs to be more black people or people of color in healthcare and everywhere, it is to change the policies, practices, and procedures mm -hmm. to ensure that we are asking the right questions and to ensure that we as consumers are okay pushing back. Yeah. Because the one thing my mother was good at, she would, she would carry my card in her wallet. And when they thought, when they were about to send her home, she's like, notice what my daughter says, and you're just sending black women home to die. I was like, okay, mommy, maybe you don't say it quite like that. Maybe you could soften that a little bit. But that is, but yeah, check and check again. Yeah. Yeah. So that is why we need more people in places and spaces. And in addition to having Black individuals and people of color, we need allies who can help us sell the message. Because That's if right. it was up to people of color, we would have raised our hands long ago and said, yeah, this doesn't work for us. Right. We need people who can help us tell the message. Yes. Sorry, I'm gonna hop off my soapbox now. No, you know what? You can stay right up there because I'm about to ask you another question and it requires that we both remain up there. So, okay. so we've had the opportunity to, you know, get a little bit acquainted and you know, I have I have been working in this diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging space for about 20 years. And so, you know, I'm very passionate about this space, as I can tell you are very passionate about the healthcare sector and the healthcare space. And as I think about um you know, I, I take an integrationist view of DEI. I don't feel like it's like, all right, okay, we're going to talk about this and now pause for station, station identification. And now we're going to talk about DEI. No, I think that we integrate. And so as I think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and I think about healthcare, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see, you know, that, that integration. And I'm curious from you, when you think about traditional DEI methods, and when you think about your lived experience and you think about your professional experience and your professional outlook, do you feel that traditional diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging methods will affect and impact significant change in healthcare? 
I think if people see it as integrated, uh -huh. that can move the needle. But I think we have to see it as more than a checkbox activity. So, Absolutely. I mean, all of you know, DE&I started in the 60s out of the civil rights movement. Yes. Um, my mother was very instrumental at Morgan. She went to Morgan the same as I did. And she was imprisoned for five days. All the jails were full for mm. integrated movie theater. And wow. I think at the time it was, it, it became a movement that, you know, affirmative action. And we're going to look at the HR function of DEI. But people are complex. Life yeah. is complex. That's we right. cannot look at it with a single lens. Nor yeah. can we look at it as a DEI department, a DEI person. We need to look at it. DEI is everyone's responsibility. That's right. It needs to be woven into everything that we do. So it needs to start at the top. Uh -huh. It needs to be bottom down and top up and everything in between. Simultaneously. It needs yes. to be written into our policies, practices, and procedures. Mm -hmm. It needs to ensure that, because if we don't, if we take traditional DEI mm -hmm. and we have events and we have um, typical trainings, we are not gonna move the needle because then when the person who's, who's creating the events and the person who's creating the trainings leave, so does DEI. But if in fact we change the policies so that equity is woven throughout, then our children and our children's children get to benefit because of that. Uh -huh. We are sitting in the, in the space that we are because laws, policies, and practices are built inequitably. And until we can unweave that, we are still going to be talking about this 60 years from now. And we have to be courageous enough to look at it in its face, to say what it is, to not feel blamed because of it, and say, oh, well, I didn't do this. Oh, it's not me. Well, it, of course, it's not any of us. And we have to also say, well, when these things were created so long ago, None of, most of us on this call weren't citizens, right? Yeah. The only people who were citizens when it was created were Anglo-Saxon, cisgendered, white males, period. Yeah. So that's who it was created for. And now we need to fix it and stop saying, stop feeling the blame. Mm -hmm. And I think, therefore, we need to look at people as a complex creatures they are, because I think in healthcare, even as we're trying to fix the social issues of people, we're saying, oh, those poor little black people, we only want to fix the poor ones, or we only, but, I, and I always try to use myself as an example, because, you know, I don't want to tell anyone else's story. I used to be 120 pounds heavier. I grew up in Trenton, which is a low-income area, but I had two parents who worked every day, my father identifies as black and Delaware Nanakote. He promised he would always stay, which he did. My parents are married 57 years. They celebrated their 57th, two days before my mother died. 
Mm. He worked on his back 17 hours a day under cars so that we could always have, we went to the very best schools in Princeton because my parents felt the education was the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I had the best, I, I never went hungry. But I have other social determinants. I was overweight. I worked even in my in ICU after my heart attack. I had my school laptop on one side and my work laptop on the other. So I have other social factors. And until we can begin to see that all of us are diverse, not all black people, but Deanna minus Vincent, yeah. Cosette, uh -huh. Strong, Kabira White. Lillian Forsyth, Paulette, we're all diverse. And until we can look at each person individually and figure out how to serve them like that as a diverse person, and then figure out the best services and supports, we're not going to move forward. Yeah, yeah. We're, I, I, I love what you, you just said. And, and what it makes me think is, you know, we're, we're working with some outdated systems right and and i believe that the the way to move the needle like we're talking about is is to work across sectors right like you said and i i feel like that's that's what your goal is in your career because throughout your career you've contributed to many different sectors right i, I said it at the beginning equity poverty housing health education you know that's just to name a few and so as, as we're thinking of these outdated systems, you know, trying to work within these, which is not successful, has not been successful. Why do you feel that it is essential to work across sectors to fix these outdated systems and to impact the change so that we're not having the same conversation 60 years from now, like you just said? I think it's essential because again, life is complex people are not one-dimensional or even two-dimensional. Two They're multi-dimensional. And you should be able to bring your whole person to the workplace, uh -huh. to your doctor. We know that only 20% of all health outcomes are due to what happens in the clinical office. And we're spending far too much as a country on poor health outcomes, poor educational outcomes, poor health, housing health, health outcomes. And they need to be like this. And I think it's particularly critical now. I mean, COVID, we saw so many innovations that happened during COVID, uh -huh. but we're not going to see any, so many of them come to the fore if they only stay in singular lane. So for instance, we may have seen an innovation, a, a health tech innovation that really helps black women with their autoimmune disease. Okay, well, that's not really gonna move the needle until they come up with an umbrella solution around, this is what wellness looks like. Uh -huh. And this is what wellness looks like for people with autoimmune disease. And then if you happen to be a female, this is what you need to do. If you happen to be a female who is black, this is what you need to do. So you need to think about algorithms that serve more broadly and no one system can do it all. I know we've tried, you know, how healthcare has tried to do housing, but you also need the housing partners. And I don't think any one sector has tried to be siloed. I think people just historically have kept their head down, tried to do their job uh -huh. because they just don't 
know how to, how or who to partner with. And I think partnering is hard. And I think a part of my role in the outcomes architect is understanding the partners. I, I've had this career where I've touched on a lot of partners and brokering these true partnerships and then figuring out, especially in the health world, how do you build the right integrations? What are the right APIs that really need to happen? How do you then go to employers or, or payers and say, this? The, we're the five services that can truly move your population along and this is what the continuum looks like. And we're a bundled service that can really help this patient population or this employee population. Because I, and I think a lot of times people need to understand, well, why? Why would I want to do this? But you need to do it because your patients continue to be unhealthy. Your employees continue to be unhealthy. And it results in absenteeism, uh -huh. retention issues, so turnover issues. And at the bottom of the, I mean, even if you don't, I hate to say, even if you don't care, yeah, you care about your your revenue, right? And if and all of that turnover costs billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in absenteeism and um, turnover costs. So that's why integration. I think the reason it hasn't happened is a people just don't know where to turn, they don't know where to start, but also there's a lot of as one of my um, old former bosses used to say, collaboration. There's a collaboration, and everyone wants to, you know, chase a dollar. I could do that. I could do that, but you can't do it well. Stay in your niche and find the right partners and trust that you can work together. Wow. Yeah. I, I thank you for giving us some strategies to create actual systems change. I think that's something we don't talk about enough. We talk about, you know, band-aid solutions as I like to call them, right? And and what I like to say is, you know, sometimes we take a band-aid and we slap it over a gushing vena cava, right? And we know that's our, our main vein. What is that going to do? Is that going to save my life? Absolutely not. And so we need to talk about systems change more. And we need to be more aligned about where we're going, right? Some of the time I think about problems, you know, people say, well, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. We get so stuck in the minutia of how to get there. And we can't also agree on where we're going. And so we're like hamsters running on a wheel, right? And that does nothing but just put energy you know, just waste energy. And so we're not actually moving the needle. We're not actually having the impact we want. We're not affecting that sustainable change. And I am curious from you, you know, you talked about your previous role at RWJ Barnabas Health, and then you transitioned to starting your own business. How did you do that? What was the impetus for that change and what motivated you to uh, to transition your career in that way? Well, I think I'm no different than many, many women, especially women of color. Um, I think it's part of a national trend. I think we have seen since 2019, more black women leave corporate America than ever before. Mm -hmm. And I think while, and to start their own businesses. And I think while it's phenomenal for entrepreneurship, it is detrimental for corporate America. Um, I think we know 
that more that corporations that have more diversity they increase revenues innovation is better um they have more they just have more to give so i think from a global standpoint i'm no different i think from a very personal standpoint i think it was mutual. I think everyone needs to understand when their time has come. I used to travel 78 miles each way to get to work. Wow. Um, for something that I really loved to do. Um, 2022, as you heard, was really hard for me. Um, and I think it was a time to reassess who I wanted to be and, and what I wanted for my life. I mean, I'm not getting any younger. I know I I know I look 35, but I'm 52 years old. And um, and um, I haven't had a heart attack and worked. And every time I think about sitting there with my laptop in my ICU bed, I just want to smack my hands. But, um, and then losing my mom in um, June. And my dad is, sad. He's broken. And um, he needs me. Um, And I think also at a time when RWJ Barnabas Health was was transitioning leadership, and they were looking at where their next path was. And it was a time where we both needed to reassess where we needed to go, and it wasn't together. Yeah. And so it was an easy decision for me. And um, I couldn't be happier. <laughs> um, I didn't want to sound so giddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you should sound as giddy as you want to. <laughs> but it has been, and I've never, um, I always saw myself as an entrepreneur. Hmm. Like I worked in companies and I've changed them. I saw myself as this change agent. Yeah. And in January, I said to my husband, I said, I think the universe is calling on me to be an entrepreneur. Like I've been having conversations and, and he said, whatever you want to do, I will carry your bags. And I was like, oh, like he's always been the steady Eddie. He works in state. And, um, and I was like, you sure? And here I am. And I am having the time of my life because my new boss, she is so cool. <laughs> I think she is too. I mean, I haven't known her for very long, but I'm just going to put that out there. I think she is too. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love to see your smile. I love to hear you talk about your happiness. I love your giddiness that is coming through the screen. Um, so let's talk about your organization more, the Outcomes Architect, right? This advisory group, you know, you work across sectors to integrate services and reimagine how health is addressed and how services are delivered. Um, So talk to me more about your organization. Yes, so I'm I'm kind of building and as I fly the plane. um, So it's really about, I'm working with a lot of VC firms, a lot of health tech, health media, firms to really figure out exactly what I said, you know, how do you work with employers to ensure that their workforce is healthier, to ensure that they are meeting all of their employees' needs through training, through one-on-one coaching, to train in a different sort of way? Because 
and I didn't really talk a lot about my role at RWJ Barnabas, but, and, and I, it's been the body of my work. So working across all of the sectors to make sure we're doing this, but um, when I joined, and you'll see kind of how it fits together, but when I joined RWJ Barnabas Health, it was to think about integrating social factors into the clinical setting using data-driven strategy. So understanding that if a diabetic patient comes in and we give them a medication that says take with food, we cannot expect them to, um, to do that without also asking them, can you afford the food? Is there a grocery store in your neighborhood? Do you know how to prepare healthy foods? And if they come back to the emergency room and they haven't taken their medication and we say, oh, these people are so non-compliant, but we didn't ask you the right questions. Right. We know that 50% of all individuals don't, they are non-adherent with their medications for a whole host of reasons. And so that program, Help Beyond the Hospital, really helped people. We asked them about their social factors in, in a multimodal way. So we asked them via text, you know, because, and, and I made sure that we asked everyone because clearly I might be asked and Dr. Michelle might not be, especially if we are in jeans in a waiting room because they're, they're like, oh yeah, Deanna, she can't afford this. Yeah, we're not going to do that because bias and stigma get inserted. Yeah. And um, so, and then also the intensity and the duration that people get followed up. And then just from a, a revenue perspective, we want to, we want to follow up people via text because that's one sense right. from their doctor as, a po as many times as we can, and then reserve the number of people we follow up via outreach or nurse home visitation, because that's 300, 3,000 compared to one cent. Yeah. So you want to reserve those as opposed to, you know, the social service system has historically given all low-income people outreach workers. Well, just because I'm low-income doesn't mean I want somebody coming to my house. Right. I might work two jobs. Right. And I only have three hours to spend with my kids. I don't want you at my house. Yeah. So, so really that piece of it. So really modality, intensity, culturally, linguistically, educationally appropriate follow-up to provide that. And then in 2020, they tapped me on my shoulder to end systemic racism for the system. So it was those two experiences wow. combined with my experience in housing and education and maternal child health that led me to say, okay, well, all of these pieces need to go together. Uh -huh. And how can I look at all of this burgeoning um, health tech and make it all go like this so that we're really serving employees and employers and educational systems to, to do this, to really help people reach their end game and achieve optimal outcomes and not just low-income people, but everyone. And, and then further it with my dissertation, dissertation, which is on employee retention and how employers can keep people engaged and not disengaged. So, so that is how the Outcomes Architect was created and, and really kind of following my passion. And, um, and that's kind of where we're at. So I'm, I'm working with a lot of people. Um, I've also brought along a cadre of really smart um, women, primarily women of color who have left the workforce either by um, will or because they've gotten displaced and to help me um, because 
I, I it took me so long to leave because I thought there would there was no work out there. Mm. Well, there's work out there. Um, people need it, and um, and I think there's because I, I think a lot of people have frontline workers and they don't know how to they don't know how to assist the whole person. They've only been looking at their employees as a paycheck. Yeah. And it's like, that's not why people leave jobs. Their managers don't know how to talk to them. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to provide a full benefits package um, because benefits extend far beyond just healthcare. Right. Because it is, especially for frontline workers, where even the management of frontline workers make $50, $52,000 for a family of four, you can qualify for SNAP up to $45,000. Yeah. And it's hard for your employee to say, I can't afford food. Yeah. So what, how do we destigmatize that? So those are the kinds of things we talk about. How do we do that? How do we make sure that all of your employees are getting third party exit interviews so you can hire better so that you can do all of that? So those are the kinds of things that I'm helping um, my partners with. Deanna, I, I am great. I, I, I am I am blown away right now. I am I am inspired. And yes, Deborah, in the chat, we need a part two. Okay. So I'm just putting it out there. Part two of this conversation. I you are a force to be reckoned with. My last name is strong, but you are a force. I can feel it through this screen. And I am so energized on this Friday morning. So thank you. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness. I also feel like I am hogging you. Um, And so we want to open it up to the rest of the community to join in this conversation. Please, if you have a question for Deanna, because I have a lot, I could continue on for our next 12 minutes. But if you have a a question for Deanna, please raise your hand. Let me know. We can, uh, you know, take you off mute and spotlight you to ask a question yourself. Um, I do see a question in the chat. Uh, Takia has asked, how do we start in corporate America, you mentioned so many people, you know, in droves, right? Leaving corporate America. How do we start? How do we bring equitable health care to our employees? Who do we collaborate with? What, what's a starting point? What are what are your thoughts there? You collaborate with the outcomes architect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> um, um, but also, I think a few things that we did early on um, when I worked at RWJ Barnabas Health. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out my colleague and friend, Kabira White, who helped me build out our equity strategy at RWJ Barnabas Health. Um, I'm, I'm a data girl. Mm. And I also have to shout out Lillian Forsyth, who helped us along our journey um, with educating and some of our workforce and our leaders, um, the whole first year we spent looking at the data and we got flack for that. Like, oh, they're just talking. Well, you can't build up strategy if you don't understand what the problem is. That's right. We had over 300 focus groups Mm. and we had focus interviews and we looked at employee data. We looked at patient data. We We did market analysis. We looked at evidence-based strategies. I know Kabir and them, they were so sick of me, but <laughs> a lot of people are sick of me and I'm okay with that. Um, 
we spent a lot of time to understand our workforce, um, to come up with goals and strategies and tactics. Um, and it was focused around four key goals. The first was around our, work, our, our patients, that we wanted equitable clinical care. The second was around our workforce. The third was around our communities. And the fourth was around our operations. And then we had 33 metrics that came underneath it and um, 15 of which sat on a scorecard for system-wide goals. And just to lay the groundwork, RWJ Barnabas Health is the largest healthcare system in the state of New Jersey and the 15th largest in the country. And um, then we tied the metrics to people's bonus structures, which made me so popular. Um, but that's okay, that's fine. Popularity wasn't my goal. Um, and so that is, and then the other thing we did is we took, during that year that we were just talking, we had something called Equitable Encounters Real Talk About Race because we wanted people just to get comfortable saying the language. Like you could say that black woman over there. That, that's perfectly fine. Don't say the tall one with the glasses and the curly hair because that's not really gonna get you there. Um, and um, we had a lot of educational components and we gave people tools because when you talk about equity here, people get intimidated. So giving the people things that they could do tomorrow, like what can you do to be an ally? What is the vernacular that you can use and you should never use? Like, like you shouldn't, you, like you couldn't, you can't say that. And then letting people know that we're human and we need to grow. Like I always use example, we had this say this, not that. One thing, chop, chop. Like I used to always say, chop, chop. Like I did not know that that was racist. Like I had no clue. I, I just didn't know. And blacklist, whitelist, grandfather clause. Um, we changed our contracting structure to have equity language built in. So taking tangible steps that people can use um, in their departments um, that they could do tomorrow. So really you know, taking those steps before we took the giant leaps, because those are things that we could celebrate today. Wow, I thank you for providing some tangibility. I think a lot of times when we talk about equity work, when we talk about allyship, when we talk about the, you know, the work of diversity and inclusion and belonging, um, we, we talk about big concepts. We talk about big ideas, pie in the sky things, very abstract, right? And so oftentimes it is, it is hard to call it down to the concrete. People ask, well, okay, what now? And so thank you for providing that tangibility. Um, please, everyone, if you have a question, uh, please uh, submit it in the chat or, or raise your hand so that I can spotlight you and you can ask uh, our guest co-host yourself. Um, in the meantime, while we're waiting for more questions, I have another question for you, Deanna. Um, one of the things that really struck me earlier, you were talking about the whole person contributing to the well-being of the whole person. And, and I, don't, I don't know why that struck me the way it did, but I feel like so often we, we, do, uh, we do practice reductionist uh, moves. You know, we, we really do. And, and we just say, okay, you're reduced to this, you're reduced to that. Um, you know, I, I am curious to know why it's critical to adopt these, these whole person approaches and how we can start. But before I ask that question, I see a hand. Michaela, go ahead and unmute yourself. I'm going to spotlight you. 
Thank you. So I ran a school for over a dozen years that uh, a K through 12 school that um, I started. And um, part of my mission from the get-go was to make it a very diverse community um, in across a variety, uh, the widest variety of, of I mean, race, race, um, socioeconomics, anybody who came to the door who was a good fit, any kiddo, we, I found a way to make it work financially. The big problem I had is that the, um, the biggest problem, I mean, ultimately I got fired by a very racist, um, white British new board chair. And we have a case at the EEOC that I'm so going to freaking nail them on, but, um, cause I taped a bunch of stuff. But the challenges that I want to be able to face better next time, because I'm starting a new school here in New York City, is that I found the trickiest, the two trickiest pieces that I know are interwoven. I don't know how to tease them apart. I don't know how to like wrap my mind around it in a practical sense is that I don't know who to trust. You know, like there are so many white liberals and I know I'm fair, right? My grandfather's West African. White people don't see me as white. Black people don't see me often as black. Brown people think I speak Spanish. I don't know what, you know, whatever I am, I'm a mix. But um, when I want to do authentic diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, most of all work in my school, and I hire a partner I adored, and really loved working with. And she turned out not to be someone I could trust. And um, she was half First Nations and half West African. And, and when the white teachers, predominantly white teachers started to push back and say, well, you're doing these workshops and we already know this stuff. We've taken these workshops before. We've been here before. and I, I know I know I did it wrong. I know that my partner that I chose, I chose to do the DEI work with me didn't have the biggest, you know, the largest, most inclusive vision really, didn't have this like holistic vision that you do, right? Like I know I'm gonna be calling you wherever you are. I know, I know I'm gonna be doing that. But you know, the really frightening thing that was so traumatic and why I wrote there in the chat, and then I'll just, I'll be quiet. I think I'm going on too long is that, you know, it's just, I feel like I'm running blind, man. I just don't know. People say they give money to, to liberal causes, millions, some of them on the board. Right. And suddenly I've been betrayed and the ground has been taken out from underneath me. And I'm gonna start again, you know, and I'm not a teenager. Like I, like I was, I was 15 years younger then, and I'm gonna do it again. I just, it took me a long time to figure out, but I am scared as. Sorry if I'm not allowed to say that. I just don't know who I can trust and how I can figure that out. And it's not always women of color. Yep. So betrayal is rough. You have to work really hard to find people and places where you can trust people. And I think um, 
a lot of us have had been burned. So I think you just have to really find ways to cultivate that as far as in the organization, like test the readiness, do readiness assessments, see if people are ready to take that step. And then another piece of advice is because we're running and I saw a, a, a question too from Andrea there, but as you know, different states are coming up with um, their views on equity, everyone wants to know is what's in it for me? What am I gonna get out of this? So even your liberals, however they define that, is at the end of the day, and, and this is gonna sound a little bit um, all lives matter-ish and it's not intended to be that, but um, it, it comes down to basic humanity. Treat, and it, while we know that equity, some of us are starting in a hole. I got it, been there, done it, whatever. But the end game is for people who are naysayers, if you have to get stuff done, you have to talk in their vernacular sometimes. So it may be, I have to get to, I have to talk to it by dollars and cents. For people who are liberals, because it sounds like you created a school that was diverse already and there, we, we know this and we're already doing this. Well, are you? So you have to show them that there are people who are starting the finish. I mean, the starting point is so further back for them and you have to show them that. And you also have to show them that, yeah, the finish line is in the same place, but you don't have the same barriers and hurdles that are thrown in the way, nor do the rules change halfway through nor are you questioned every day. And that is something that, that we're building out some, some simulations that, that um, we're rolling out by fall so that people can see that. Because I, I just don't think that people understand those challenges. And that is one of the things that I, um, I heard as we were rolling out ending racism is we just never knew it was so bad. So I think those are things you have to continually teach because people don't understand, they don't know what they don't know. And it, but it does come down to basic humanity too. So those two things, I'm raising awareness in a different sort of way, and then also teaching people what basic humanity looks like. And I know we're out of time to Cosette. We are, and I am so disappointed. Thank you, Michaela, for your question. Thank you, Deanna, for being here today. Would you please leave us with one last sentence of wisdom so we can continue to soak you up and take you with us into the weekend? Sure, so in honor of my mother, I, I leave everyone with this and in, order, in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, I tell everyone it is fine not to be fine. Speak up if you need to and get help as much as you need to. So thank you all so very much. Wow. Thank and you. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of the conversation. Thank you for being here with us, Deanna. And thank you to our Intentional Conversations vodcast community. Thank you for being here and spending this hour with us. We will see you next week. Have a safe and amazing weekend. Bye.